What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, and I am the host of the What to Know podcast show and the CMO of W2O Group. And today, in honor of Pride Month, we have a very special guest. Uh, Her name is Dr. Monica Gandhi. She is the co-chair of AIDS 2020 Conference. Uh, She's an MD, an MPH. She is a UCSF professor of medicine in the division of HIV infectious disease and global medicine, which is particularly apropos these days. And then the medical director of Ward 86, which played a historic role in the treatment and prevention of HIV AIDS at UCSF Partner Hospital, Zuckerberg, San Francisco General Hospital and Trauma Center. So welcome, Monica. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. And it's always a pleasure, you know, speaking to people like you that have done and continue to do such amazing things. And obviously, we have a lot going on right now that makes this more relevant than ever. As I mentioned, it is Pride Month. We have this thing called COVID-19, which is, you know, impacting everything we do. And then on top of it, we're talking about um, racial injustice and diversity and, you know, healthcare. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, disparity in healthcare. And so, you have a lot of good perspective, I think, and we'll be able to give the audience some, some really good um, background, insight, and information on this. So I know we want to focus, I think, more on the LGBTQ plus disparities, but I do want to start with the overall health disparities, because for the reasons I just mentioned, I think it would be tone deaf not to. Let's talk a little bit about the current disparities in health in the United States, and, and what do you see going on right now? So I think that the COVID-19 pandemic has really revealed a lot about disparities in health, but the problem is that we knew this all along from HIV. So every infectious disease pandemic at some level always works along fault lines of vulnerability. It works um, against marginalized and stigmatized communities, racial and ethnic minorities. These are because of structural inequalities and because of systemic racism and because of homophobia and everything else that comes along with social determinants of health. These are the populations that have always suffered the most from infectious diseases. So HIV, we already knew that this was a disease of disparities. We knew it from the very beginning of the pandemic of HIV. And now COVID-19, we know that this is a infection that's occurring most in this country, at least, among racial and ethnic minorities, among those who are in crowded places, who have to live in places where there's a lot of shared bathrooms or a lot of people where they can't shelter in place because people have to go to work. And so all of that has led to this new dialogue in this country about disparities, about systemic racism, about structural inequalities, leading to disparate outcomes with COVID-19. And I think that for those of us who work in HIV, this is a refrain that we've heard before. And um, it means that we have to redouble down on our efforts to work on disparities in HIV, because at least the open the country is starting to open up about dialogues and about us kind of reckoning with all these disparities that occur in this country with infectious diseases. Yeah, and that's critically important. And I know there have been a few states and governors that have um, declared racism a public health crisis. And it really, for the, all those reasons you just mentioned, I think one of the things that people forget about is, is that the LGBTQ community 
also suffers from uh, health disparities, specifically, you know, that impact the community today. Can you talk a little bit about that and why that is? Yes, I mean, this is something that um, for me in particular, I've, uh, anyone who works in HIV have been fighting for our, our whole career, which is um, the health inequities for those who are LGBTQ. But the COVID pandemic is going to affect HIV treatment and HIV PrEP outcomes. We're gonna be presenting at AIDS 2020 some very important abstracts about the interaction of COVID and HIV. And what that interaction means is not just does HIV make you more susceptible to COVID, which the jury's actually a little bit out on that. It's, it's the other way, is the COVID pandemic is, is threatening to derail our goals towards giving everyone access to HIV treatment worldwide, derail our goals in this country, for example, of ensuring that everyone has PrEP access, access to PrEP, including African-American and Latino young men. Um, and it also is derailing our goals of around substance use and depression and mental illness and isolation because these are conditions that can affect those living with HIV more, especially older gay men, for example, who have lost a huge community and now they're totally socially isolated, living with COVID-19 during the lockdown. And so we have to think about the effects of the COVID pandemic on those who are LGBTQ um, and living with HIV. And then one other thing is the question about HIV risk. There's going to be an abstract at AIDS 2020 that talks about HIV susceptibility going up among LGBTQ individuals in the face of all this loneliness and everything that's going on with COVID. Um, so we're very worried about that worldwide. And then one other comment about this is that transgender individuals have been sort of, um, uh, they're starting to be discussed around the racism uh, movement, but when we think about racism and we think about a particular subgroup, which is African-American, Latino, transgender individuals, that is a group that has really been struck with poor outcomes with HIV. And so um, this is a group that we have to highlight again when we think about uh, this anti-racism movement that's going on in the United States, thank God. So I do want to do a follow-up on something I think that's positive that can we can focus on and that is thinking about culturally affirming and informed health care what does that mean to you and how can that help improve some of these you know outcomes yeah i mean we used to call care in medicine culturally competent and we stopped using that term and really the the phrase is cultural humility um and the idea there is that when you are treating or having a patient in front of you that you are not experiencing what they've gone through in terms of racism or stigmatization from being gay or um, uh, that uh, transgender uh, individuals, all that they've suffered. It isn't actually about competence, it's about humility and ensuring that we deliver that type of care that brings a profound understanding to the table that you cannot understand what people have gone through, but that you are there to be completely non-judgmental and to listen and to try to work within your framework of knowing about healthcare, how to help that person. And so this is also going to create a revolution and has in medical uh, student education about how we think about how we um, treat patients and, and how we stop using language that could be you know, completely affirming in one way, um, sexual orientation or gender affirming in one way. It has to be, we have to kind of almost unravel our learning and relearn how to, um, how to culturally, with humility, 
work as physicians and healthcare workers with those living with HIV and those living with COVID because it's the, it's the entirely same thing. It is infectious diseases in general have always highlighted disparities and COVID is doing nothing different than um, any of, of any of these pandemics ever did. Yeah, and one of the outcomes that we know, I think COVID in particular has really stressed is mental health. And we know that mental health is already an issue and we could spend five other conversations on this, but how is minority stress related to mental health problems uh, and other adverse outcomes? Let's talk a little bit about that correlation. Yeah, I mean, so mental health um, already, um, in, in going back to the COVID HIV connection, those living with HIV, there were always uh, always a higher um, prevalence of mental health diagnoses in those living with HIV because you've just been told by society that something's wrong with you and that you, you know, um, and and you've been living with this from the beginning. And so all of this has led to higher rates of depression and anxiety, for example, among LGBTQ individuals living with HIV. And then you add COVID to it and you're telling people that they can't see their um, you know, people who with whom they connect, and we've stopped our social groups at Ward 86, our HIV clinic, for our older patients, and we had social groups and support groups for all sorts of um, groups, and all of these have been stopped. And so, um, so mental health difficulties and exacerbations in mental health diagnoses during COVID is very worrisome. Um, kind of result of the pandemic. And so, and then um, add to it that the country doesn't you know, seem to be, it, it definitely is reacting to what's been going on with police brutality and there's a reaction, but we haven't yet have clear solutions about what we're doing in terms of, you know, fixing 400 years of racism in this country. So all of that is leading to a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, and, um, and a lot of exacerbation of underlying uh, isolation issues. And uh, I think that this is a profound time to be an HIV doctor. It is one of the most moving and profoundly important times I can ever think of. That all I do when I talk to my patients is tell me who you're talking to. Tell me if you're lonely. Tell me if you're having problems with food. Tell me if you're having problems with your um, housing. Like it's all about kind of these determinants of health. And so it is, it is, it behooves us to, to, we were always trying to spotlight mental, uh, spotlight mental illness. And now we have to like, just, wide open, um, shine a brilliant light on what we need to be doing in this country to uh, provide more mental health services and um, to work on the fact that we have created a society where people are sort of stigmatized for having infections. And so we got to, we have to work on this and we need better supports and we need more services. Do you find yourself related to that since you are someone that works with HIV patients? So you've had to deal with the LGBTQ thing for a long time. You're also a woman. You're also a non-white woman, which gives you this very unique perspective. Are you finding yourself needing to um, spend time with your peers, sort of training them and educating them? Because it seems like you've been out ahead of the curve for a long time and you've had to address a lot of these things personally. And I'm sure other doctors like you have had to address these personally. Maybe you could tell us about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, my personal, um, story around this is that I did grow up in a very different place. I grew up in Utah um, and I was uh, an Indian uh, person growing up in Utah and I was the only a very few uh, you know, children of color in my school and I had a lot of 
not um, indirect, but direct racism, a uh, lot of epithets, a lot of like name calling um, completely directed towards me. And so it made me um, profoundly aware of what it felt like to be um, uh, a victim of racism in this country. And then I moved to Boston and San Francisco places where things are not so overt, um, but it doesn't mean that it's not there. And I think that what I have been doing in one of my roles at, um, at Ward 86 is, is two things that we just started in the last month. One, we started an equity committee at um, Ward 86. And one thing we've never had is a black health program. We have a specific program for Latino um, patients and it's a Spanish speaking clinic, but we never had a specific black health program. We're gonna start that now. Um, the second thing that we've been working on, um, and we started this way before racism became like the word that people talk about, is a group of early stage investigators at UCSF who work in HIV research who are um, underrepresented minorities. And we just got together last Friday, and a lot of what people talk about is um, people keep on writing me and saying, I'm really sorry about all the racism. <laughs> and, and they're kind of, we're kind of like, they're kind of like, you know, it's actually a burden to write back to your dean and say, I'm really, you know, thanks for saying I'm sorry. It, is, it isn't actually about acknowledging um, uh, that there's brutality among the police, that there's racism in this country. It isn't about acknowledging. It's actually about putting programs into place that structurally address them. So where are the scholarships, where are the bridge funding, where's the, um, what do we do to retain um, underrepresented minorities um, in our in our university, what are the structural changes that we can make besides just many, many nice emails that say, wow, I totally get it, there's a lot of racism. Um, and so I think that is what people are talking about a lot um, in my roles, at least at the university, is what can we do to put into place things that don't just say we stand and support, but this is X, 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 what we're gonna do uh, to change things for you. Yeah, I like, th thank you for that. And, and that's a very, personal answer, and I've heard a lot of the same, you know, as a white male, how can I be an ally? How can I demonstrate action? And I think it is something that's critical for us. Like, it's no more thoughts and prayers or, you know, right. I'm sorry. It's uh, what am I going to do and how am I going to change this? So right. um, exactly. thank you for being very candid on that. I do want to ask what seems like probably a rhetorical question, but I think the answer is an important one. Uh, there probably are a lot of parallels between COVID-19 and the HIV epidemic, which, you know, you would think at this point we would have completely eradicated it, but we're still battling it. It's part of why you're doing what you're doing. What are some of the things that we can learn as parallels between those two horrific diseases that have impacted us, you know, short term and, and long term? Yes, I mean, there's, there are, as you say, there are many um, parallels. These are the two viral pandemics of um, our of our era, uh, so uh, HIV, um, you know, is actually currently infecting 36.9 million people living worldwide. So we just passed, I think, almost that we're going to pass the 10 million mark um, very soon with number of COVID cases around the world. But um, you know, right now, 36.9 million people are actively living with HIV. So these, these are the pandemics um, the, of our lifetime. And what that means is that a lot of people who work in HIV, uh, myself included, have changed over to working in COVID. So we're still working on HIV, but it just made the most sense that a lot of HIV researchers and a lot of HIV clinicians immediately turned their attention to COVID because they're nimble, they're compassionate, they 
have been working on pandemics. They kind of take up a challenge. And so I would say that a lot of our community is massively focused on COVID right now. Um, the, the second parallel is that uh, it seems to be sometimes surprising to some that, you know, about the disparities, but we already knew that viral pandemics affect those who are poor and, and Black and Latino more. And so, um, and so it highlights that, that we have to keep on um, talking about disparities, but not just dis talking about it, but like you said before, making structural changes that would overcome them. So it's something so simple as if you can't socially distance um, and stay away from people and, and work at home when you're an essential worker and you're an immigrant and you happen to work in this industry or you're cleaning houses or you're working or you have to go out, whether we had community transmission in San Francisco on March 5th or not, then that means you put structural supports into place so that if people need to quarantine or isolate, then you bring them food, you, um, you know, give them money, a check so that they don't have to go out and work. Um, and so that you actually give them the time to, to enact the public health symptoms. Um, and then the, th so besides the HIV researchers all turning towards this and the HIV clinicians and besides the disparities piece, the third thing is I think that HIV is really going to inform COVID in terms of immunology, virology, and vaccine development. So um, it is we always kind of say to ourselves as HIV researchers that we always inform other fields. And I think that is completely accurate. Um, a lot of the virology, though there are kind of two different viruses and one's an RNA and one's an RNA and one's called a retrovirus, but it doesn't matter. They have a lot of similarities. Um, I think that vaccines are gonna move quickly and more quickly because of HIV researchers being involved and because the NIH has harnessed um, what's called the, the HIV Prevention Trial Network. They've harnessed the big network to prevent HIV to administer the vaccine candidates for COVID. And I think that everything's going to move faster because HIV researchers and HIV infrastructure is involved. I hadn't thought about that. And that actually is quite comforting, right? That we do have these experts and you that have lived through this for the last, whatever it's been, 30 years, 40 years. Let's talk a little bit about some of the misinformation that I know came when HIV first hit the world and, and then came to the United States, a lot of it was very racially and homophobic, you know, um, centered. It feels like maybe differently with COVID, there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation that surrounds that. Any advice or advice that you're giving to fellow physicians that are battling this, like how do you sort of not let that get in the way and how do you make sure that you're getting to the truth and listening to the medicine and the facts as cleanly, as clearly as possible. Yes, I mean, I think that you're exactly right that at the beginning of the HIV pandemic, um, in this country at least, it was all anti-gay language, um, anti-Haitian. Um, we had uh, hemophiliacs were being brought in for uh, stigmatization, um, like a little boy, Ryan White, who was 11 when he was kicked out of a school because he had HIV. And so um, all of that was just around fear and marginalization, and it led to poor HIV outcomes. It led to things like the president of the United States at the time not speaking in, uh, until seven years into the, into the pandemic about it. It led to delays in many things. This kind of fear can lead to delay and problems in controlling and fixing the problem. And so now, um, the important lesson that we can learn from that is that 
Uh, right now, there's no biological basis. It's not because African-Americans have more diabetes or heart disease or, um, and it's because they don't take care of themselves. You know, all these biological myths that why they'd be more susceptible to COVID. It is all purely and straight out structural inequalities because of racism in this country that we've had disparities in um, black or Latinx populations getting more COVID. And so we have to eliminate any discussion about kind of biology or marginalization from our physician um, community. And what we have to talk about now is as physicians and as healthcare workers, how do we go back to the principles that we were trying to work on with HIV and fix things um, or at least make it impossible for them to be put into policy um, that, um, that influence health outcomes. So a good example would be that um, we can't limit what the, what the, um, the, the ACA is doing um, in terms of being able to uh, provide healthcare for transgender individuals. We need to um, ensure that we have strict policies into place so that there's no healthcare insurance discrimination um, for someone who needs to have healthcare management for um, uh, gender dysmorphia. They need to have access to everything that you would need for transgender management. So that's a good example that um, I think that we have to think about as physicians, just taking homophobia and racism and everything else that's influenced healthcare policy out of the equation, make it a health issue, make it a public health issue. And then our entire purpose as physicians is to fix health and to work on health. And then you see someone in a humble way about what I can do to help you with um, all the things that you're facing in the society to help help you address your health needs. So it is, um, I think it is, I mean, I think it's exciting to be a medical student right now. Actually, uh, Dr. Tony Fauci gave the um, graduation speech for the UCSF medical students, right. actually, and it was inspiring. He said like, boy, you're coming of age in the middle of a pandemic. This is going to influence everything you do, uh, just like anyone who did it in HIV. So it's, it's an important time to, to be learning. It is an important time to be learning. Um, and speaking of learning, I do want to shift to this conference, right? That's part of why we're talking to you. And it's the AIDS 2020 23rd International AIDS Conference. Uh, it's now gone virtual, but I want to start with the original plan, which was to do it physically. You had an interesting model in the fact that you were doing it both in San Francisco and in Oakland. And I believe you were handling the San Francisco piece as co-chair and then Cynthia Carey Grant, who we're interviewing as part of this series as well, was handling Oakland. What was the thinking there? Because I think a lot of people that don't know, they're all in the Bay. And even though they're only, what, eight miles across or six miles away from each other, there are so many differences between the two cities. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the disparities and why that led to the original plan of two different conferences simultaneously. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a big part of having the conference in both cities to highlight the disparities just across a bridge um, on uh, the HIV epidemic. So essentially, um, there are um, poor outcomes and more African-Americans in, um, in, uh, in Oakland and Berkeley and across the Bay. And uh, San Francisco has been very blessed and has had a lot of resources put towards its HIV movement. And so all of that has made disparities in virologic outcomes and people who get on PrEP just in that span of just across the Bay, which just highlights in this country that 
There are areas of the South and Southeast that just are not doing as well because of structural racism. So because of all of those important issues that make it harder for people to get on meds or stay on meds or take their meds. So it was part of the response that um, YIS chose these two cities is to highlight disparities in the HIV epidemic, not just in this country, but worldwide and why some populations aren't doing as well. What do we have to do for transgender care? And, um, and that was part of the, the purpose. And then of course it had to go virtual because of COVID. So let's talk about that. Um, how has that changed the program other than the obvious of not doing it in person, but uh, are you feeling like you now have access maybe to more experts because you can reach out to people across the world and the country? And then any changes that made specifically to how you programmed it? I think that there are good and bad aspects of having it be virtual. The, the, there, there was no choice. So there's no even point, you know, even in, because of the health and safety of our participants was the most important thing. So there's no point in saying, well, I wish we could have. But it is true that part of um, these meetings have always been bringing a large community together of 15 to 20,000 people who are advocates and patients and scientists and clinicians and all come together to talk. So we can't do that. However, their advantages are in that um, when people want to sign up to hear a session, they always never knew where to go because they were like, there were so many multiple competing exciting sessions at once. And so now people can sign up for multiple and watch the webcasts of others. And um, I think the most exciting aspect of what we have done to change the meeting in response to COVID was to put a whole brand new meeting at the end of AIDS 2020, which is the COVID conference. So the first ever global health conference on COVID, we had to structure a virtual platform for AIDS 2020. So we're going to harness that platform and also give a huge COVID conference. And it's um, a full day. Uh, Dr. Um, Debbie Burks, Dr. Tony Fauci, uh, Dr. Tedros from the WHO are all speaking. And it's an incredible lineup of um, not only plenary talks, but people put in their oral abstracts and we're getting kind of the latest cutting edge COVID news. And I think that meeting has made it profoundly exciting. And we've decided to make it free so that people can hear clinical information no matter where they are or epi information. So you have to register, but absolutely free of charge. And I think that made this kind of all worth it to be able to put embed in that same platform, a new COVID meeting and just it for sure it's more international i can't say that it's as focused on the bay area as it would have been but i'm hoping that our bay area um, constituents who have all been working on this meeting feel a part of this meeting and hopefully after this when we speak and gather we're all going to gather and you know um, work together on the kind of legacy that I hope comes out of AIDS 2020, because every city always has a legacy that comes out of the international AIDS meeting. Well, this will certainly be a unique one for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so a tactical and then a big picture question, tactical. So if you want people to go and sign up and learn more for the conference, where should they go? So um, we accept registrations all the way up to the second of the meeting. So all the way up to July 6th, you can register for AIDS 2020 and it's AIDS2020.org. And I would say that another advantage of virtuality is that we had to close registration before to like make badges and stuff and you can register now, you know, late. And then um, if you want to register for the COVID meeting, just put in Google COVID-19 International AIDS Conference, um, and that site will come up because it's a specific site. 
and then you can register for that for free. So please come, please join us, please be a part of this meeting. Well, hopefully we'll get some of the uh, word out there for this, so that's good, right? My big picture question before we close up is, I like to ask some of my guests, you have a magic wand, you can wave it, and you get one wish, it could be anything, it could be a, a million dollars, or it could be, I wanna you know, cure AIDS. What, what, would that, uh, what would your wish be? I want um, every single person who's living with HIV in this world to have complete and ready access to antiretroviral therapy and the easiest to take, the least toxic um, antiretroviral therapy, not based on price, but based on the best one for them. And I want all 36.9 million people by 2021 to have the best antiretroviral therapy every single day for the rest of their lives. Well, I love the specificity and I didn't <laughs> give you that question up front. So you did a great job at answering that one. Uh, and with that, I will wrap up. So I will say thank, thank you, Dr. Monica Gandhi. You've been amazing. And thank you. for those listening in, this is Aaron Strout, host of the What to Know and the CMO of the um, of W2O. Sorry, it's like uh, I forget what I do some days here. Uh, <laughs> you are also the co-chair of the 23rd International AIDS Conference, which we just spoke about. Uh, you're a medical doctor. You're a master of public health, UCSF professor of medicine. Uh, in the Division of HIV Infectious Disease and Global Medicine and the Medical Director of Ward 86. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for putting good into the world. And thank you for joining us as a guest today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at whogroup.com slash whattoknow.com.